I have no idea where this tape comes from, but it ended up my, in my studio. So I'll be recording our conversation here. It's a 60 minute tape, so there will be a break uh, after 30 minutes. Uh, we have to turn the tape around. Um, and this is to give you kind of a feeling about how uh, tape has kind of a, a, a length you have to relate to. Another thing is, I, we need to, to have a feeling for for a tape. And I think a lot of people haven't really touched tape in, in many years. So I had this uh, this idea that let's, let's all feel tape. <laughs> and let's see how much tape actually is. I think this is a 60 minute tape. It's beautiful. It is. And tape plays at five centimeters per second. So you need tape to be really thin. So you need a lot of tape. When I was a teenager, 17 years old, in the 70s, I, uh, I worked at a factory that manufactured cassette tape. Yeah, it was called Columbia Magnetics in Bethel, Connecticut. And it was around 1975. 1976 and uh, I didn't know what the job was I mm -hmm. found it in the newspaper and it was sweeping floors in the middle of the night with a cleanup crew and um, it was a really interesting factory it was really ghostly at night but all the lights were on in all the in all the rooms or the industrial rooms where they had these huge machines that were doing huge spools of this magnetic tape which that would um, eventually sort of get parsed down to whatever tape was necessary and cassette tapes were coming out of there. And I had no romance with cassette tapes at that time because they were just sort of... Uh, yeah, that was your work? Yeah, they were just sort of part of the, the, the audio uh, world. So I didn't really give it any kind of s s special notice. Um, and it was a horrible job, you know, sweeping floors in the middle of the night. And I only lasted there for a few months. But in retrospect, it's kind of... Uh, I'm really sort of happy that I had that experience of working at a tape magnetics uh, factory. <laughs> yeah. Now that we're here talking about it. And you're here years later and I'm... Well, I used, to, have, to, I used to have to sweep this, 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 stuff. this shit up all yeah. the time. <laughs> so now that you're unspooling cool. it, it's giving me a little bit of a kind of a, like a nightmare of like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually doing this is something I don't really do a lot. So, so it's kind of a bad feeling that you destroy it. It's like Christmas in a way. Yes. I don't know if there's queen on this one as well. So I would like to pass this around so everybody can just get a touch and feel of cassette tape. Pass it around. So, so you recorded, so you worked at this factory making yes. tapes. Yeah. When this was in the... I think around 1975. So 1975. Because cassette tapes were invented by Philips in 1962 or 63. It's, it's a bit unclear, and it became a mass uh, mass market product in 1965. Uh, Philips would argue with, uh, with the other uh, manufacturers about uh, you know pat patents and stuff like this. But it became a mass product in 1965, and they spent few years trying to get it right. But in the 70s, it it um, it you know it became really a huge thing. <coughs> Yeah, it was it was the uh, I think it was, was it the largest selling format for recorded music at some point. In nineteen eighty four. Okay. Apparently. <laughs> 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 if you say eighty four, everybody thinks that was the, the big yeah. time of vinyl, but tapes actually outsold uh, yeah. uh, outsold the vinyl in nineteen eighty four. Well, as you know, home taping was killing music. Yeah, do you remember those? <laughs> Someone you didn't, haven't seen this, but some, sometimes uh, some record labels had on the inner bag of the LP it had a warning that you shouldn't tape this record because it would. Oh, you have to spread it. Around. Everybody needs to pay this. Oh, well, it would discourage uh, uh, the consumers. For, yes, from, from buying the actual uh, vinyl record because you were taping it and giving it to your friends, yeah. which also became like the scourge of digital music later on to a much further extent. But there would be a little image, there would be a little icon of a cassette tape package with like 
like sort of like evil X's in the eyes where the spools were, and I would say, home taping is killing music. <laughs> it's like a piracy thing. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder how many people were inspired to actually record because of that. that I, could, I could record. Yeah, that's it's a well, cool actually, looking little yeah. logo. <laughs> well, certainly you and I were. <laughs> yes, I remember that. That was uh, very nice. Did you have eight-track tapes in, uh, in, in in Norway in Europe? No, you know, those are the, in America. It was like this this horrible uh, kind of um, it was a it was a I think it was a, a fatter tape, possibly. It was like eight-track tape. You know what I'm talking about? The eight-track your eight-track cartridges, and they were um, very popular uh, in in America for like the sort of youth market um, in early '70s. And in cars. And, and yeah, you had eight-track players in cars, and um, they were like these big, bulky uh, eight-track cassette uh, shells that you would jam into the eight-track player, and um, the songs would just sort of stop, and then it would click over to the next track, and it would start up again. And um, I think as a as a musical artist, that must have been really infuriating to hear your song just sort of like stop because the tape was wound out, and then it would have to click over again. And, and continue, but so you think to, to us it was always really sort of funny that it would do that. If you listen to like a prog rock album of the 70s, which you know, the side long songs, be like yeah. every three minutes will be but pushing. You know that, that film, uh, Dazed and Confused? They, they, that's, they, they really sort of show that in that film. In fact, that scene at the end where they're just sort of jamming the, uh, uh, the I think they kiss a track into the machine and they're racing over the Texas highway to go get Aerosmith tickets three hours away. I really related to that. So cassettes became the standard. In fact, in, in America, when they had, everybody had 8-track players, these, these big old clunky 8-track players. And I remember seeing somebody who had a player in their car that took this kind of cassette, like the, the, the standard cassette, and thinking that was really sophisticated. And, um, and then, of course, that became, uh, that became the norm when when I think consumers realized that eight tracks were just just complete bullshit, but they 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 um, they really sold eight track tapes to the uh, to the American consumer in, in a big way. Yes, I, I remember my, my father was an enthusiast of American cars, so he had a, uh, a Cadillac, sixties mm -hmm. Cadillac, and it had like our regular tapes couldn't fit. Yeah. <laughs> so like, what is this thing? And we didn't we never had tapes that could fit in my dad's right. car. We could drive around, listen to the radio. They, they, they were absurd. You couldn't, re in, you couldn't record on them. There wasn't, there wasn't a, there was no eight-track player that also recorded. I, I think there was, but nobody really sort of utilized it. So that the culture of recording on eight tracks was not, it never really came into play so much. It wasn't really until uh, cassettes became um, quite huge in the USA, where all of a sudden people started recording albums on cassettes, and, that's, and that was when the industry started like, freaking out about LP sales um, being challenged by uh, people sharing their music on cassettes. I, I remember I, I talked to Attila Tsihagov, he's a things in Sano and, and Mayhem, yeah. and he said in, he grew up in Romania, uh, and he remembered they could go and rent metal LPs, and they would bring them home, and they could would record them and then bring them back the next day. Yeah. And they would rent out their piece and then record it. They couldn't afford to buy imports. You know, so uh -huh. One guy in the whole town would, would buy it and he would rent it out and people would record it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a metal guy. Maybe there was somebody else down the street uh, who was renting out some of youth albums. Maybe. <laughs> but I always, I, when I was a, when I was a a uh, 13-year-old kid, I used to sort of um, spend a lot of time recording things on on a cassette, like a Radio Shack uh, cassette recorder, not unlike this one you have here, maybe a little, maybe a little bigger. And uh, and I held on to those recordings, and I, I actually uh, put some of them on this uh, solo record I did in the early 2000s. It was called Trees Outside the Academy, and there's a track on it called Thurston at 13, which is basically these recordings I had made on cassette tape as, as a 13-year-old. And um, and for no reason, I mean, it was it was just it was it was it was there in the household, and I, would, I realized that I could actually sort of record. 
And so I was making sounds on it, and I was doing descriptive uh, recording where I was like, here's the sound of a penny falling on the table, and I would do it. And then here's the sound of a pencil being thrown against a window, and I would do it, and I would record it. You would, and you would say a session of sounds. Okay, you would explain the sounds. Yeah, but I was, uh, yeah, and um, so, yeah, 20 years later, I found this cassette, and I was like, I, um, I thought it would actually kind of work well on a solo record. Um, but you never heard it, so. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, have, I did the same thing. I was, I was, I was young. I, I grew up on a farm, and I would, I would start recording over tapes that I bought, because in those days you couldn't check out stuff. You would just buy something, you hear about it, you would buy it. And I bought a Norwegian uh, hard rock band called uh, TNT. And it turned out they were terrible. <laughs> They're really awful. So what did I do with this tape? There was no eBay. I couldn't. You can sell. You're just stuck with the stuff you want. So I actually have that tape now, and it's recording of me driving on my moped. <laughs> oh really? Yes. That's fantastic. I would drive a moped. It was a farm. Nobody cared. And I put. I had this small. Uh, Ghetto blasters. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Ghetto blasters were 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 so um, were, were such such a part of the culture of cassettes in, in a way. And I, um, the bigger they got, the more fascinating it was. And I, I I remember, you know, on tour, the first couple of tours that Sonic Youth would do in a van crisscrossing USA um, or or Europe, um, we would everybody would sort of bring a few cassettes of uh, you know mixtapes of um, what what they wanted to listen to on tour and you sort of subject to the the rest of the people in the van to like what you were listening to at the time and so that was always and that was always fun and then you, people you would meet on tour would gift you uh, a cassette with like a mixtape and that was always cool and you sort of you would hear this stuff or a band would give you their like forthcoming record uh, just they were just Recorded on cassette for you, and you would hear like this new record by this band, and you would sort of spread the word, and that was kind of part of that. But the the, the um, we had a van um, that the cassette player uh, it finally had its day, and it just broke, and we were just getting ready for tour again, and, and we knew that there was no uh, cassette player in the van, and so um, I was entrusted to sort of get a um, a, a cassette player for the van that was portable. And so um, I was given, you know, access to like a, a couple of hundred dollars, and uh, of which I was supposedly going to spend like maybe sixty dollars to buy like you know a cool little portable cassette player. And this was at the advent of um, of like LL Cool J's radio, and hip and hip hop was sort of taking on this new edge with uh, with Def Jam and. And uh, I was just like, I'm gonna go get the biggest boombox that I can buy in New York City. But I didn't want to tell the, the band that because I would have been shot down. They were like, you can't, no, you can't waste your money on it. But I knew I was gonna do it anyway. And it was just like, it was, it, it, and I went to uh, this uh, place on Delancey Street, which is like where all the, 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 the hip hop kids would go to, to buy their boomboxes. And I went into this place and I just looked around for the largest boombox, which was a Konion, C-O-N-I-O-N. And it was on the top shelf. It was monstrous. It was the size of a building. And uh, I said, I want to buy that. And I, and it, and it, I spent the entire the Sonic Youth tour money. <laughs> and so we met the next morning at like 6 a.m. at the studio to load the van up. And I, <laughs> and I come walking down the street with this huge thing. and. I was just like, they were like, you can't be serious. You can't. I can't believe you just bought this, this, this cassette player, boombox. And I said, no, it sounds great. It's going to be wonderful. Um, but then it was a little sort of embarrassing because it it didn't fit anywhere <laughs> in the van. So we kind of sort of jammed it between the two seats in the front, but still it was even bigger than a seat itself. Um, I still have it, and it has all the yeah. stickers on it from like Black Flag and Sacker and Trust and Minutemen and all these, you know, our whole tour was like stickered on this, on this uh, boom box, and I still have I, I still have it. I, uh, it's, it's, it's still working. Surprise, but yes, it still works. It's still working. 
It's two cassettes, uh, FM, AM radio, shortwave. <laughs> so and makes, and I was, I was really, huh? It's a double? A double cassette, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it also has, a, it has inputs for microphones so you can sort of wrap along with yeah. your cassettes. Yeah. Cool. But I was really kind of bummed out because uh, a few months later I saw that they had actually sort of made one that had a, a push-out uh, turntable that would come out of it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, that's like... It's gonna be huge. It was even better, yeah. <laughs> but now there's all these fetish sites on the internet for like boomboxes, and I see the one that I have, like cleaned up copies that are just astronomical, like prices. And so uh, it kind of, I, I, I feel somewhat um, vindicated. Start collecting this fine piece of work. Yeah, but I would, I would, I would use the boombox that we had. There were smaller ones in my house. I had one. My sister had one, and there was one in the kitchen. And I, I, would, I would kind of kill them because I would. I stopped doing tape cutouts. Uh, I would scream into the microphone, and yeah. I would, I would yeah. and it would make this kind of yeah. amazing effect. You know, yeah, because we cut in in time. So it was fantastic. But of course, you do that for half a year, and you know, it, it yeah. starts to get. Uh, so well, there's recording qualities on, on, on cassette recorders that only exist on the cassette recorder and um, that were kind of annoying when you were sort of taping records and you would sort of like hit the pause button before or after. And sometimes the, the pickup on, on, the, uh, on the machine would be slightly slow and so you would always have this kind of like going to speed sound. Yeah, which in retrospect, I really love. It's such a great, great sound. But it was always you're always trying to perfect that, which like trying not to get that. So there's just a fine little gap between songs, um, without that kind of pickup sound on the, on the music. There would be big differences in different cassette decks. Yeah. Some would have like like it was like a really good clay, good cassette deck. It would do that totally silent. You couldn't hear it. Yeah. That's what you paid double for that one. Yeah. And but uh, cheaper ones would go. Yeah, the cassette machines as noisemakers was something I think people of our generation obviously got into because I don't think that's certainly not what they were sort of, um, they were built for, but as soon as you were able to sort of line a cassette player out into your amplifier and sort of fuck with the, uh, the, the fast forward and the reverse button while pressing down the play button and sort of was it, were able to sort of rush the tape over the heads and different speeds and you can regulate it sort of with your thumb, that was fantastic. No, I, I still use that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do electronics. I have a big table of all kinds of stuff, oscillators, pedals, but there's pretty much always a cassette uh, thing like yeah. this. But I also destroy these, so when I find them, uh, you know, I buy them, like yeah. tons of them. Because they also wear out, you wear out uh, the, you know, the rubber band that's inside them. So we, started use, we started using them on stage. I was going to ask you that, because you would, I remember reading that you used them between songs. Yeah, pretty early on, um, around 83, 84, um, we were, when we first started playing out um, around 1980, we were, the, you know, our guitars were, were tuned to such un, these unorthodox tunings, and so we would, we would have to spend this inordinate amount of time between songs, sort of uh, tuning the guitars to the next piece of music, which um, I guess to some people in the audiences it was somewhat amusing but for most people it was, it was very annoying and we'd be like and then we would start with this song and um, and then do it again <coughs> so we're, I thought like maybe it would be better to sort of um, play music for the audience while we were doing this and so at first it became this thing where I would just uh, I would play like hits of the day which would be like a, you know the, the newest Pat Benatar song or something like this. And it just sounded great, just like blasting through an amplifier because it was distorted and the audience would just grimace because it's like, oh God, I made this like Pat Benatar. But it sounds actually really great, like distorted. So it became this whole other thing and and started refining it more and then you, and, and doing different things and playing, um, I was playing, I, I think, uh, like I Wanna Be Your Dog, uh, you know, like by the Stooges between songs, um, or at least right before we started our own version of I Wanna Be Your Dog, and so it became... Made the original first. Yeah. And then you covered And so when we did, we, I think, our, our third album was called Bad Moon Rising, and we wanted to sort of replicate what we were doing live with that. And so that whole record is um, seamless as far as the sequence goes. There's no, there's no um, stops between the songs, unless you flip it over. I mean, it might be seen between side A and side B.
and that was supposed to uh, replicate what we were doing on stage at the time. And so that record, you hear, um, you hear, you actually hear that recording of the Stooges, which I don't know how we got away with actually releasing that. We'd never got permission for it, but in those days, it, that didn't seem to be too much of a concern. Um, and it still exists as it is with that Stooges material on there. And you did that with Kiss also. Yes, and we did it with Kiss on this this Chicano Youth record. Yeah. This, <coughs> and that, that was just using a Kiss uh, song, Strutter, yeah. and uh, just flipping it back and forth yeah, on, on, on the rewind. Uh, so, that, yeah, I mean... That, you get, you get, I, how did you get away with that? I mean, yeah, and we got away with that as well. But I think the fact that it actually sort of takes on a different... Um, it, it's, uh, it's almost like taking a photograph of a painting and, 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 and <coughs> presenting it as your own as your own photograph, as a, as a piece of art. So I mean, that's, that's the only uh, uh, kind of way of looking at it. But that became a really big part of our thing, and I kind of missed doing that. I mean, that kind of disappeared after a while as the band sort of uh, went forward. You got more guitars, and people would bring out uh, different tuning guitars. To yeah, I think that's probably what, what happened. Yeah. Um, you, have, you just had one guitar. I mean, I did continue to use uh, cassettes on stage uh, Quite late into the game, where it was, but they were mostly there just for their own sake of making um, noise. When we get into so long improvisations, I would switch over to the cassette amplifier, as it were, and um, and just go to town. But I, I remember when we were doing that early on, and um, I noticed that uh, Dinosaur Junior started doing it, and but they were doing it so much better. Or they were doing it more functionally, or in a way, and Lou Barlow was actually doing it, where he had it sort of the cassette continuously playing while the band was on stage, but he had an on-off switch that would mute it, and a mute switch, a foot switch, and so every time a Dinosaur Junior would end their song, he would just hit that switch, and then this uh, this this cassette tape that he had recorded, whatever he recorded on, would sort of uh, fill the gaps between the songs, and I just thought that was like a really great way of doing it, it kind of, uh, I think maybe in a way it sort of discouraged me from continuing to do it because Lou had kind of uh, sort of taken it to a, a new place. He refined it, but maybe yeah. you were first and, and you invented it and he kind of made the, he refined it. Yeah. But um, also um, in those early days of Sony Youth, uh, I, I checked and, uh, yeah, your first, uh, that album, because it's just like five or six songs, and the, there's a tape version of that where the B-side is the whole album backwards. Yeah, it's backwards. Yes. How well, because well, he always made, I mean, uh, that was, it was on um, SST Records. Before, it was on a label called Neutral, which is Glenn Branca's label, and we just did vinyl. And then when we signed to SST, we re-released the Neutral Records, that one and Confusion S6, and they made cassettes. And they were like, well, the cassette of the first record, do you have anything else that you could put on the other side? And we were like, well, no, not from, I mean, what would we put on there? I mean, we, we didn't think about like what there could be, like there's some live stuff or whatever. Um, but we decided to um, play the entire record in reverse on the other side of the, on, of the, of the cassette. So yeah, so yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what's going on there. And plus it sounded cool. I mean, anything, in, anything played in reverse sounds just as good as it does forward. Everything <laughs> sounds better backwards, you know. <laughs> it's a great trick. Mm. You, you you think about how many people actually listen to it, uh, you know, right way and well, you obviously right. did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you didn't listen to Thirst at thirteen, but you heard. Yeah, I remember right. Gibby Haynes from Butthole Surfer said he wanted to actually, he I think he was attempting to record a song written in reverse where he would actually sing the words in in reverse and try to, <laughs> and then and then play it forward yes. and sort of see what that see if it would sound. Correct for I mean you know what I'm saying like it was sort of for the um, battle surface I'm sure it would yes. <laughs> sort of like a faux reversal yeah uh, yeah but I don't think he ever did it but it was it sounded like such a great idea but but um, you started out you started out making albums you went to vinyl you don't you didn't have like years of putting out cassettes no yeah that, I mean th there was some cassette only labels that existed um, coming out of the 70s there was a tape called there was a tape label called Roar, O-R-O-I-R, -O -O Reach Out International Records. It was a New York label, and they put out, um, they were just proud of their like cassette-only thing. They did like like a Bush Tetris thing and a suicide record as a cassette, and, and it was very sort of, sort of New York-centric. Um, 
thing. And there were some cassette-only labels that, there were some coming out of the UK that were doing some early um, sort of industrial music, um, like, <clears throat> uh, what's it called, the Red Desert cassettes. Um, uh, and there were sort of these cassette wallets that would come out, and there was cassettes that would come out. Cassettes, you know, Malcolm yeah. McLaren did like Bow Wow Wow on cassette, he had this whole sort of mythos and romance with like, the cassette is the uh, is the format of, of punk rock, and and, uh, and he tried to sort of make that be a big thing, but um, and it was kind of you know it was kind of cool. I mean, Bow Wow Wow's song was like an homage to the C thirty C sixty C ninety go, and it was all about the immediacy of the cassette, which was sort of relative to the immediacy of of the scene of punk rock, you know. So that was kind of it. Kind of made sense. It was kind of cool, and it was kind of exciting when he did that. Um, and there were certainly cassettes that were just uh, unique to the, the punk rock scene at mm. the time that were cassette-only releases. There was, I remember there was like, like a Sex Pistols interview cassette that was only available on cassette, and that was like really desirable item for those of us who were kind of collecting, like, you know, whatever was happening in the punk rock scene. So when did you start collecting cassettes? When... But collecting cassettes, I, did, I mean, at that time it wasn't about collecting cassettes because it wasn't really sort of a... Uh, it, 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 you were just sort of, you were collecting punk rock. I mean, you just like anything that was being released because there was no there was no digital digital medium, so it wasn't like this kind of anxiety of like, well, it just exists already sort of in the digital sphere, you know. Um, so there was no there was no sort of competitive uh, quantity to what was going on. It was just like you had vinyl, you had cassettes or whatever. It was just sort of there. It was all object oriented. It was there, so there was there was no digital and but cassette. I think that um, I started collecting cassettes sort of much later on into um, the 80s and it was like when I first went to Japan and I noticed that a lot of the sort of experimental and sort of noise groups that were sort of happening in Japan that were sort of fetishizing a lot of what they were hearing from like UK industrial and European industrial music um, and making these like really sort of um, beautifully sort of series designed cassettes on their different labels. and. That was really fascinating to me. Um, and I started buying them there and noticing that. And then it sort of led me back into um, sort of cassette labels that had existed primarily in the UK around um, like Nurse with Wound. Uh, United, uh, what was it called? United, United Dairies. Dairies. United Dairies. And, you know, I never really sort of, um, sort of, uh, was that never really um, resonated with me so much because I always thought it had a lot of sort of um, trappings of like sort of gothic uh, kind of uh, imagery, just really sort of challenging uh, aesthetically, and using it as a, you know as a measure of shock and, a, and just sort of uh, you know a measure of trying to regard horror you know, on a, on a very human and realistic scale. So that kind of imagery was just like really easy. Um, very heavy kind of, uh, you know, violent uh, sexuality. And, and I, I just didn't, you know, that didn't really appeal to me. But what was going on in the Japanese culture, which sort of took that in a way and sort of, um, in some kind of amusement, because in a way it disregarded it as something alien to what they were into, which was like, um, their own, own thing, and there was also there was also this kind of fetish quality and their their aesthetic as well. But um, a lot of it had to do primarily just with um, uh, just the idea of noise, and it was almost like it became uh, like what Metallica did for metal, or just sort of like, well, we're just going to wear dungarees and rip shirts instead of dressing up in spandex and and and. Uh, and uh, so that was appealing to me. That's this kind of um, like a format fetish. We're just taking with those trappings of of, um, of the brutal brutalist imagery. Yeah. Um, that was a bit later, also. I think. And it was like, well, it continued certainly. Yeah. It went a bit later, and it coincided a lot with uh, what what started happening, like on the cassette underground of the '90s, leading into the 2000s. And it really became a, a very big deal. Um, and I, I was. I guess I was interested in it because um, it had a this. Oh, you let's flip this. Hold that side. Hold that side A. Yeah, you were saying? 
Well, it became interesting to me because it had a lot to do with the economics of, of, of making uh, of music, and it was like the, it was the, the most economically viable uh, format. I mean, it, it, it cost very little to uh, produce, and it cost less to actually sort of be a consumer for um, than any other format. And it became these ways for new cultures to sort of trade documents of um, sound and noise exploration. Um, and it was a culture that was all of a sudden, you know, um, it had all this information of the first uh, really hardcore, you know, decade of experimental music, which was, you know, a lot through the 80s, coming out of punk rock. I mean, it was, just, it was a real appreciation and, and, and total investigation of experiment of experimental music for for uh, for young culture and and um, when CDs started happening in the um, uh, mostly in the 90s it was it, there was this all of a sudden um, these recordings that were deemed kind of lost and underground and just unfindable were being reissued on CDs and we were getting be able to hear it and so you started getting these more sort of knowledgeable uh, factions in, 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 in uh, the music world. And so all of a sudden you, you would hear about somebody like John Olson doing American tapes out of Michigan and he was releasing these uh, cassettes of music that were informed by like you know really arcane uh, psychedelic sounds and ideas you know, coming out of different parts of the world. And then people just really focusing on uh, sort of harsh electronic noise music. And um, I slowly started realizing that it was this, uh, it was this kind of new. Um, it was it was it was a completely new new scene of, of production, and uh, and it was completely affordable. You can and so you could amass these all success, and 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 you started um, becoming part of a uh, this somewhat kind of super sub-underground society of, of music appreciation. Um, and so it was, it was kind of elite. <laughs> there was something appealing about that as yeah. well. So it's like, you know, you knew you sort of, but it, it was, but it was also because you had, uh, it was super, for me it was really inspiring, it was really intriguing, it was really, uh, um, I found it educational. I mean, it led me into sort of places that, um, I thought were really radical, and I was always interested in the radical in music and these just, just marginalized uh, uh, um, worlds of music that you felt somewhat alone in, you know. And all of a sudden, you realized there were these communities all over the world, and they were sharing the documents through cassettes, through through the mail, through the mail. Yeah, like that's that's how I, I started that the, the wave of, of uh, you know noise musician that you're describing now is that's where I came from, late eighties, early nineties. And I thought the great thing about cassettes is you don't have to make 500. Because you, when you're starting out, there's, there's not 500 people interested in what you do. You maybe know 20 people. So you will go out, you buy 20 tapes, and you would dub them and send them out. And that's, that's yeah. the addition. So, so it, was, it was really uh, an affordable way of spreading your music. Right. I think it came elite because you just know 20 people. Uh, it, it was a real personal dynamic to it. I mean, it, it, you know, it wasn't. It, it was it was genre music in the way that like genre music has the uh, you know a complete similarity in in, in its in its production like you know be it reggae or country and western or whatever it's just like it, it was a certain similarity in, 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 in the genre which is like I always liked I like I like the idea of, of a uniform sort of uh, um, practice you know with like a community and there was certainly that in this music but at the same time there was this real sort of uh, Amazing sort of um, geographical personality. So you could sort of tell what was Japanese or what was, you know, what was Norwegian or what was Swedish or what was German or what was UK. There was like these ideas, and they were being shared um, in a way that really didn't so much exist before. That there was there was there's definitely more borders earlier because of the um, the difficulty of of communicating because you were dependent on. The, Postal service or whatever else, but this it was <clears throat> the cassette culture of the of the '90s and the 2000s was concurrent with um, 
with internet culture as well. And so some of the first sort of sites that were sort of um, kind of chat or board sites on the internet, um, there were some discussion groups that were about noise music and cassette music, and you were able to sort of make available and advertise your edition of 20 cassettes that you had just done in this very small little town somewhere in the really far away, and all you have to do is either trade with me or or send me something, or maybe send me some money, and I will send you this cassette. And I started doing that immediately. And, and, um, and that was, every day was like Christmas, because you would get all these, these cassettes. And, there was, and, and I started going further back, and I started writing to people who had put out early, sort of like, like Mertzbauer or White House cassettes on their labels, but they had disappeared from the scene, but they were kind of precursors to it. And I would find their addresses in old uh, issues of certain magazines that dealt with kind of industrial music or whatever, and I would write to these addresses, usually never hearing something, but sometimes I would get a package in the mail, I was like, um, nobody's asked me about this in years, here's the masters to the cassette I did in person or something, I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. Because they were just, they had grown up, you know, yeah. it was just like, they left it behind. Um, and little did they realize that there was this whole sort of future generation that was going to blow up out of it. And it's sort of like, in a way, it's sort of like the Stooges, you know, it's just like, I think it was very surprising to like Iggy Pop when punk rock happened that there was actually a whole culture that was like, listened to his records, because no, as far as he was concerned, nobody was listening, you know, it was just like, and then all of a sudden it was just like, well, these people are listening and it's going to change everything. So that gratification must be amazing. It's a great thing. I, I did this uh, CD box at all, all the capacitance, this Japanese noise band, and like collecting all their tapes, and they didn't have all the masters. Like mm -hmm. they, 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 were, they said, sorry, they're gone, right. you know. But we actually tracked down some of the people. And some of them were still active in the, in the noise scene, it's very easy. But other people, we, it was really hard to, to find these people. But we did, and they, they still had the master tapes. Mm -hmm. and they couldn't believe that somebody wanted to have put this in like a CD box set. So, the, so you're right. There is just those bit. There's been come this whole culture about, you know, reissuing this stuff. And yeah. I mean, there's a there's a German label who's dedicated to making these extremely lavish uh, vinyl box sets. You know, like 10 LP box sets, wall cassette material, you know, vinyl on demand. Yes, yes, kind of, yeah. just kind of insane. That something that was made in 20 copies is now like this desirable, you know, 150 euro object. I had it in my mind uh, years back to actually do compilations, like vinyl compilations on my own label, Ecstatic Piece, of what I really liked <coughs> hearing on um, underground cassettes, whether it be like noise cassettes or sort of like you know weirdo folk psych cassettes or whatever. I mean, and there was such a there was such a, a there was a lot of cross genre, genre uh, music going on in the in the cassette scene. So you you would have like. Uh, this kind of more Americana folk psych stuff of somebody like Wooden Wand that was sort of associative with Wolf Eyes. I mean, they were friends, they were sort of coming from the same uh, sort of demographic, but the, musically they were completely, almost worlds apart, but still, I mean, appreciative of each other's uh, ideas, and there's there a lot of sort of uh, cross interest there. And uh, so, that's what made a lot of um, collecting those cassettes really interesting because it, 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 it could just go anywhere um, with whoever was doing whatever. And I saw there was a period when I was actually really listening to a lot of this stuff. And um, I mean, you listened to it? Well, yeah, it was actually, I mean, it was, that's another thing. I mean, it, it, was, it was primarily just really object oriented. I mean, I really liked it as a tactile object. And I, I you know, this kind of casing with like whatever artwork would exist, I just thought was like kind of a great object, and and the artwork um, really sort of you know had the capacity to sort of become more than what it, you can see, and you could open it up and it could fold out yeah. or whatever. And of course, what um, what Anne Hill uh, was talking about was you know the cassettes that people would sink into like concrete blocks where you sort of had to pry them out, and, or the famous Mertzbal cassette that was an edition of one that was inside of the car. Uh, cassette, and you have to buy the car to hear it. It was sealed off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there was things like that. There was like it, it, it had no fear of being absurd, and it was just like 
But for the most part, um, cassettes were all sort of handcrafted and handmade, and, 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 and uh, they would be numbered, and they were, so there, there was something very sort of personalized about them at the same time. You knew that the artist actually sort of touched the same thing you were touching. They were kind of art objects in a way. Yeah, and they were art objects. And, and so, um, I, yeah, I had this idea that uh, I would make these uh, vinyl compilations of these different great things I would hear on these cassettes. And I started trying to compile them, but I, I did not do this. And I kind of regret it to this day, because I, I, I think it's still something that can be done, but it would require not doing anything else. Okay. <laughs> Such as, like, I wouldn't be here right now. Yeah, okay, yeah, you couldn't come to all those. <laughs> so, okay, so maybe you shouldn't do it. But, but, you know, but back to the thing about cassettes being art objects, I, I, and as you said, every day was like Christmas. Because back in the 90s, I would get stuff in the mail almost pretty much every day. Yeah. And there would be a lot of great stuff, a lot of weird stuff. And, and I remember one had a teddy bear in the mail. There's <laughs> <laughs> a teddy bear, and, and, and somebody had cut it open, put a tape inside, <laughs> and then it had like safety pins, like five safety <laughs> pins. So you had to open the safety pins to take out the tape. And I always, I always felt that maybe some kid is missing his teddy bear. <laughs> There was an exhibit in uh, New York City at Printed Matter, which is a um, artist bookstore of note, and um, there was an exhibit of uh, underground cassette uh, art, for the most part. And they had, they had different. They had, uh, it was curated where um, different cassette and noise artists uh, would display um, what they thought was really amazing in their collections or whatever. And so it, it was people like, uh, I think, uh, like Dennis Tifus from, Ant from Antwerp, and um, I think John Olson from Michigan, and, uh, and, and myself. And I was, you know, I, uh, and most of the tapes on display were kind of, like you said, there were these kind of more outlandish uh, kind of tapes. But I was really sort of more, I mean, I, there's a lot of tapes that were just like really, they're really beautiful, and they're really. Sometimes they would just be really elegant, um, just a simple cassettes with uh, um, the artist's work on it. And it made me realize at the time that um, a lot of the, a lot of the music makers making, who were who were just devoted and vocational to just being part of the cassette underground, and not having too much ambition beyond that to like make an LP or make a CD or actually go on the road and open for some. Like big time band, that was not that was not part of their consciousness. The, they, it, there was a certain um, there was a certain glory in not having that ambition and sort of being very happy just doing that cassette and, and doing performances uh, in in basements around the world and seeing being part of that culture. And it was it was a really wonderful kind of society to be in, um, and, and it certainly had nothing to do with. Um, you know, any kind of like revenue. I mean, you, you were lucky to get enough sort of petrol money to get from one place to the next, and that was that was what it was all about. And I realized that a lot of it was people who had a concurrent interest not in just sort of making music and sound and noise, but also visual art. And um, that was really interesting to me because I, I always, that's something that really always attracted me to um, moving to New York City and getting involved with sort of the punk rock and avant-garde scene. There was like there was always this um, there was always a, a very uh, defined sort of communication relationship between being a visual artist and being an audio artist, and that was really prevalent in the cassette underground. Um, certainly, somebody who I keep mentioning, like John Olson from Wolf Eyes, he's like. He's, Who's now made a thousand releases of his American tapes? Yeah, has he reached the thousand? Yeah, release? I think he did. Like New Year's was like the big. He had a party. He had a party. I think yeah. that's the end of the label also because he okay. made a thousand. And, well, that's another thing. I mean, the cassette underground, as, as we're speaking of it, that existed for so long, is pretty much in a way has sort of moved on, moved forward, has served, and a lot of it has to do with um, it being really sort of part of this kind of human condition where people grow up. John Olson is married, has a child. He's, in, he's got employment. Uh, you know, he studied uh, to be a professional electrician, and that's what, he, what he's doing with his world. And he still does his, his, inter his interest in music and art is still there. But um, it's also, uh, I think, um, 
as a lot of people in that community in the 90s into the 2000s, they've just, they've, they've, um, they've gone on. And you, you know, you can be an underground cassette noise artist for so long, and you kind of have to sort of um, maybe do more than that. I mean, it's okay. To, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making judgments on you. Or what do you? <laughs> You'll be a cassette noise artist until the day you die. <laughs> Never quitting. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. I mean, no. when, when I was. But I mean, John Olson actually did this interview recently on tour with Wolf Eyes, and um, that people were just sort of like sending to each other uh, on the internet, like he was coming out saying, like, "The noise music scene is dead." It's like it's like, and now we're interested in, in composition, and like you know, it's really sort of focusing on what composition can be, as opposed to sort of like these ideas of improvisation and and sort of the the idea of, of uh, just this liberated idea of, of sound and music, and now we're sort of looking at these concepts of that's what a thousand pieces will do. And and and, and, and and but in his own sort of uh, unique way, I mean, not like you know, not. Denying that you know, <laughs> that's been sort of investigated quite a bit, but uh, so that was kind of. But for him, who's sort of a figurehead to so many people in that scene, to sort of say like, it's, it's toast. Yeah. <laughs> put, a, yeah. put a fork in it. Let's move forward. That was kind of like, that was that was kind of an amazing thing to say. It was almost like saying hippie is dead or, yeah. you know, or something. But I think with with like with John and, and me, when when we start we started out making noise. Teenagers and we do it, you know, in our twenties, and so it's these labels are kind of uh, like journals. You know, the the, the, yeah. the label you do is kind of like a journal of your life. You know, of figuring out stuff and trying out things. Um, and you know, you do it when you're twenty and and maybe thirty, but I guess and you do it and you do it in additions of twenty and thirty. Yeah, exactly. Right? So that's, exactly. What's, that's what's really kind of wild about. But you know, if, if I look at my discography, you know, in, in the nineties was like twenty, forty tapes a year, yeah. and now I do one or two, just yeah. kind of to keep you know keep it in shape. But yeah, yeah. but it's not as urgent anymore uh, as it was. I mean, to me, it's it's interesting that um, there has yet to be a a, a, a real um, encyclopedic retrospective of what the tape underground is and was. And I think, in a way, I, I just like, I mentioned that interview with John because I just think like, okay, we need parameters here, and that's probably a good cutoff point, as John Olson's saying, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and you can sort of start with kind of like the earliest sort of forays in the, in the late 70s coming out of industrial music and sort of move forward. But that kind of history and a, a, an, a, an actual checklist, an actual sort of discography of it would be immense. It would be incredibly immense because it, it was completely global. It would and be impossible. It's, it's near impossible. And I, at, even early on in the 90s, I remember being in Japan and talking to s some like noise collectors there. And, and I was saying, like, um, is there anybody who, that you know that probably would have all these early, um, you know, industrial noise cassettes that were sort of being produced. And they said, well, Masami would, uh, Kido would have them, because he was first on the scene with that stuff. And everything was sent to him, and he was just like sending everything to everybody. So he he has everything. And so I thought that, well, that's good good to know. <laughs> and I always wonder if, if, if Masami Akito is, is, uh, is Mertzbal, is his nom de plume. But, uh, so there are, you know, there are people between him, between yourself, between myself, and, and the other people. I think there's in somebody like Henry Rollins uh, from Black Flag, and Henry Rollins never really uh, recorded uh, in, uh, that I know of, like any kind of underground noise cassettes. He was just the singer of Black Flag, and he's Henry Rollins, who's his own person uh, as far as being a writer or a performer or a writer. He's put it upon himself the last few years to be the custodial guy for the American Tapes label. Which was really, yeah, as you, you, you laugh, because it's amusing. It's just like, well, okay, and he's, and he, but he's been so, he's been seriously involved for years of trying to sort of locate every, uh, every item on American Tapes, and he's, he's done it by going to the source, by going to John Olson, and, and he's, uh, um, 
gone to people like myself or Byron Coley and, and sort of said, I'm willing to sort of purchase anything that you're, that you've, uh, that you might have doubles on, or are you just like, are you done with it by now? You must be done with it by now. <laughs> but I, I just, I, I figured that, um, I just thought that was like really kind of, uh, I was just, I thought that was wonderful that, you know, somebody like Henry Rollins decided to become, you know, the custodian to like this noise cassette label of note and wanting to sort of, you know, put in his library all a thousand copies, even though some of these things only exist in the ether, like the, the thousandth copy, the, south, the thousandth release was an event. Yeah, you New know? Year's. Uh, yeah. Um, which is, labels have done this in the past. I mean, obviously, they give release numbers to events or to other kinds of ephemera or whatever. But, so, I mean, things like, you know, that's, that's kind of amazing to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, but what was the name of your your uh, cassette label? Uh, I had one called T W R Tapes. That was one of them. Okay. But I started out. I didn't have a label name, so I was, that was years of just like making stuff. And I didn't keep copies myself. Yeah. And the master tapes, I just like maybe it says September nineteen ninety one. You know, I, I I don't know if I actually made a release of that or not. You know, and a few of them might maybe I made five copies, and some I made. At the most, mm. and it would be variable length because I would go to the, uh, the, the convenience store and they would sell these tapes for cheap that was pre recorded mm. and, would, and the length would vary. You know. right. So if my master was 60 minutes, but I, I bought a bunch of tapes that was just you know, 40 minutes, you know, it would be missing. But it didn't, that didn't matter, you know, that, that thing. It was, uh, you know, it's not the whole thing, but it's, it's enough. You know. you send it back. <laughs> And these are tape labels that have actual imprints. They're imprints. They're, they're label names. Or you know, they're sort of defined by uh, the label, by the imprint of the label. But then there's the whole sort of networking culture of just sort of personalized cassettes that people make. As Anne was talking earlier in this book that Eva and I had done of mixtape, it was like these. They were love letters, and there was tapes that you would make for somebody you love, and they, that was like that was really that was really important <laughs> and and then there's the, the, these really you know I, I, uh, I tell people about these cassettes that I have from the artist Dan Graham um, that he recorded on his uh, little Nakamichi deck in the, in the 70s of all the no wave bands when I was working on doing this book on no wave with Byron Coley those it was it was an amazing source material for us and um, he actually was one of the few people who was <clears throat> going to see these bands with a, a good cassette recorder, and he recorded really early contortions and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks and Mars shows. On Nakamichi. On like this, like Nakamichi deck. Yeah, maybe people don't know that Nakamichi is like that's the greatest tape deck and yeah. tape recorder you could get. And anybody who say tell you that uh, tapes always sound crap, you should put them in front of a Nakamichi and just have a tape and yeah. it's just let, amazing. Just don't let Dan Graham be the one operating the machine. So tape can, can actually sound really good. Yeah. Yeah. But, there, but there's, yeah, there's, there's about a half dozen of these cassette tapes that Dan Graham had had, uh, had in his place. And I used to live uh, just below him in, in uh, the early 80s. And, and of course at that time I just, you know, it, it was, I didn't think that much of it because it was still near enough to the time period when this stuff happened, but as time went on, we became more sort of um, kind of romantically involved with like what happened in that history, and we wanted to do this book on No Wave. I remembered Dan Graham Henry's tapes, and I went to him and, and, uh, and made copies of them. And, and, uh, so there's these wonderful um, the live recordings that people had made uh, on cassette that, you know, you, you hear about. And again, not to bring Henry Rollins back into the mix, but I remember Henry Rollins was like one of the great uh, cassette collectors in um, the early 80s, and he was renowned for um, uh, writing letters to everybody around the world to amass like the largest live birthday party cassette collection in the world. And he had every single gig they had ever done that had been recorded on cassette in his library. And it wasn't just the birthday party, it was like his own group Black Flag, and it was things that he was just kind of interested in. He wanted every live recording that was available, no matter what the quality, and he would notate it on the, on the, on the, on the spines of the cassette. 
and um, I believe he should, he probably still has this this collection, but it it, it, it must be um, it must be amazing. And but those you know, but those are completely personal collections of cassettes. And it's always wonderful to me to go into like uh, charity shops and thrift stores and what have you, and then you'll find cassettes from that era of you know people's tiny little handwriting of like like what records are on there, and um, and then you you'll, you can buy them for nothing, obviously, and most of them are pretty you know you don't want them they're like Depeche Mode and stuff like this, but you know but sometimes it's just sort of like it'll just, it'll just say Mix or Queen or whatever, but they sound great. And that's another aspect uh, or a factor of what we're talking about that we haven't really addressed is like what cassettes, cassettes sound like. I mean, they're, this tape is like fat ferrous oxide that sort of goes over these roller heads and you play it at different biases. Um, there's like normal bias and there's CRO2 bias and then there's chrome bias. And there's also sort of Dolby noise reduction that you can sort of like flip on or off usually on these machines. Um, and Dolby was a way of sort of de-clicking and uh, getting rid of um, sort of unwanted sounds on tape. Um, and, and eventually Dolby was, Dolby was a big business that was sort of like clean tape up so when it would be mastered to vinyl you wouldn't hear like any of these sort of uh, nefarious kind of uh, sounds uh, that had nothing to do with the recorded music. But by Usually, you could sort of um, have the option of taking the Dolby off on these machines, and you would hear this, 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 this tape hiss or whatever, which we would just, you know, that's what we wanted to hear, So you know, that was like really great, and you could actually sort of keep taping something over and over again. So it was like a Xerox and Xerox over, so it would become more and more noisy, and so you sort of, the tape hiss would become more prevalent, and it would override the actual sort of source music and that was always kind of a wonderful thing to do. But the actual sound of, for myself, cassette tapes was kind of, to this day, um, the, I, I feel like the best sound for audio. I mean, it's, I find it to be completely um, uh, kind of engaging because it's, um, it, it is, it is, it's total analog. And it's not um, it's not music you're hearing in any sort of numerical way, the way di digital is. So the brain doesn't decipher it immediately the way it deciphers numerical information on digital. The brain hears it, and when it hears it again, it doesn't really necessitate having to hear it again because it's already processed it. But listening to cassette tapes and to some extent vinyl, it's always kind of um, it, it's it's always somewhat new. The, the listening experience, the processing uh, experience, and um, that's and I think tape is uh, is even richer than than vinyl. Trying to sort of replicate tape as a as a format anyway, um, but vinyl was always interesting because it was being mastered, and so the art of mastering for vinyl was like um, was kind of a wonderful it was a, it was a wonderful audio art that sort of got lost in the in the in the, in the world of digital. Especially this whole thing of remastering for like CDs, uh, it's not—it's just not the same because it's not the same mastering machinery. It's this digital machinery, so it's by nature, it's just—it's it's something else entirely. I, I agree. Uh, the, the sound of tape is fantastic. And with I think a lot of us noise artists is that's the reason we're noise artists because of tape. I mean, yeah. If I had only digital recording device, I don't think I would have even done this stuff. And in my first years, I didn't have any pedals. I had no pedals. It was all tape distortion. You know, just putting a, a very hot signal into the tape and just overriding it to the maximum. And it would it would uh, just have a beautiful sound. Yeah. It was just, when I mean, when you reach the limit to digital, it sounds terrible. But when you reach the limit to, to tape, it starts just becoming just colors and you could explore that, and there's so much there. Yeah. And I, that's the reason why I started making noises, because of these tapes and how they sounded when you would push them beyond what they were supposed to, to be pushed. Did so, you ever use reel-to-reels uh, as opposed to cassette tapes? Uh, now I do. Oh, but not, not as a kid, because I didn't have that uh, then. You know, I, yeah. I bought those later, but I just started with cassette uh, 
Yeah. I remember I had one of those double decks, you know, that you could copy one yeah. set to another. Uh, duping decks. Duping decks. But I found out that it, that had a really cheap stereo. You could, I could dupe at double speed, but it would still take, you know, the input from the turntable. So if I would do stuff on the turntable, you know, that yeah, would yeah. be half speed when you play that back, you know. So yeah, yeah. that's how I overdubbed in the beginning, and yeah. back and forth, and then you get this half speed real fantastic yeah so it was, it was really something to explore and I did for years before I bought any pedals or stuff like that mm -hmm. just tape distortion and every tape deck would sound differently when you when you pushed it so you know it'd be so so many uh, variables and stuff you can do with it yeah I mean I, I asked about the reel to reels because when Sonic Youth first started Lee Ronaldo was um, doing stuff with reel-to-reels at the time, like doing sort of tape experimental stuff that way. And on the first sort of proper Sonic Youth record, which was Confusion of Sex after that mini LP that was backwards, um, there's a piece of music on there called Lee is Free, which is sort yeah. of this tape music that he had brought in from doing these, these reel-to-reel experiments at the time. And uh, I, I, I very rarely see people utilize reel-to-reels now in any, in any experimental way. And I just think they're just, as sound emitters are just so great sounding. Oh, they sound fantastic. Yeah. But I didn't have access to it uh, then. And the reason I started was the stuff was there. You know, I had the tape recorder in my room. So once you start going, well, there's stuff happening. You start to push this stuff. Uh, and you know, I didn't know about William Burroughs and cut up stuff then. Yeah. I heard about that later. So when I, you know, I read Naked Lunch and learned about the cut up technique, it was more kind of a uh, confirmation and, and it's over. It's over. Sorry. That's it. Tape's over. Thank you, everybody.